Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's good to see all of you here, and happy Father's Day. And gentlemen, um, for those of you that are dads, let me just encourage you um, to be that anchor that your family needs, um, that they would uh, be comfortable loving or receiving your love, uh, learning from you, as well as being the one that they can lean into. Um, sometimes the dads um, might not have the greatest interaction, but when crisis comes, uh, your kids should know that they can lean into you and that you will be there to help them. I just want to encourage you to, to, to see that and to, to follow that and to take that responsibility this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Um, you've come on an unusual Sunday, not because it's Father's Day. Um, we are at the end of our study through the book of Exodus, and um, we typically take large sections of Scripture as our text. And this morning, we're going to be looking at six chapters, uh, Exodus 35 through 40. A number of people came in this morning saying, hey, I read my five chapters. Um, but the math is actually six chapters, all right, 35 to 40. It sounds like five, but it's actually six. Um, and we are going to not read through the whole passage, but we are going to um, read sections of it. So Steve Anderson's going to come. Um, the, the sections are going to be up on the screen. And I think, Steve, if you don't mind, just maybe announcing that section when you get there to help us. And that'll prepare us then for what the Lord has to show, for, show us here as we study or go through this one last section of the book of Exodus. Steve, let's stand together, please. And the first section is chapter 35 of Exodus, verses 1 through 9. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And then uh, down this chapter to verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, like the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahimashek, 
of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And then all the way to chapter 40, verse 33. 40:33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for how this book has sustained us through 2020 and half of 2021. But as we look back on this season in our lives, although it might be highlighted with things like um, a pandemic and a very tense election year and a lot of uh, racial or social justice issues that are going on, Lord, maybe we look back and remember this time as our exodus time, where we were allowed to be strengthened and guided and counseled and fed by your word through this wonderful book. And Lord, all along we have been praying, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us? And Lord, now as we come to the end of this book, May our hearts still be ready to learn, to listen, to be shaped and molded by your word. And Lord, may we see you in all your glory and splendor. And Lord, allow me as your messenger simply to be faithful to proclaim your truth so that your people can grow in Christ-likeness and so that those who do not know you will be drawn to you through your gospel. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are two friends that were sitting together in a sports bar, and they were watching the 11 o'clock news. It was kind of late at night, and a report comes on about a man threatening to jump off of a very tall building in downtown. And one friend turns to the other and says, I'll bet you 10 bucks the guy doesn't jump. And his friend says, it's a bet. A few minutes later, the man on the ledge jumps. So the loser hands his pal a $10 bill. I can't take your money, his friend admits. 
I saw him jump earlier on the 6 o'clock news. And the guy says, me too, but I didn't think he'd do it again. The question here we have this morning as we come to our text is, will Israel learn from the past? Or will they just repeat it once again? Will they fall into the same trap that they fell into and ignore what God is teaching them? And this is what we find then. Will they disregard God's word or will they take advantage of all that God had done in delivering his people? Now, friends, just just think about it as we just highlight some things that Israel had gone through. They had gone through a lot. They'd been slaves in Egypt and God rescued them from their bondage. They had stood at the Red Sea with Egypt at their backs, and God delivered them from their enemies. They'd wandered in the wilderness looking for food and and water, and God had provided manna and water. They'd arrived at the mountain where they met with God and covenanted with him. They received the word of God, the Ten Commandments, through the voice of God and the the, the case law, or what was called the, the Book of the Covenant, through Moses, their mediator. And when Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the instructions for the tabernacle, they had disobeyed his commandments by creating and worshiping the golden calf. There had been judgment. There had been confrontation. There had been repentance. And now their relationship has been restored. It has been uh, renewed with a new, fresh reading and commitment to God's covenant. But God's dwelling in his tabernacle had yet to be taken, had yet to take place. So now the question is, will Israel listen to God's instructions and obey, or will they once again ignore God's word? Thankfully, it's the former. What we have in chapters 35 through 40 is the story of Israel's faithful obedience to God's word. Now, we need to make a clear distinction, and I say this very, very carefully. Faithful obedience cannot take place without a clear word from the Lord. God has to speak in order for us to be obedient. We have to know what he says. And friends, this is where there can be a disconnect that takes place in our commitment or our demands for obedience. And maybe this happens in the home. Maybe this happens in other contexts where we we expect those under our care to be obedient, but the obedience isn't necessarily rooted in anything that God says. So, our call to be obedient must flow from the clear teaching of God's word. It assumes, then, that we know God's word. It assumes that we're teaching God's word to our children. It assumes that we are not looking for man-made Uh, or tradition, or uh, uh, some kind of a cultural obedience, but that our obedience is rooted in what God has revealed and what he is expecting of us. That's given to us in his word. Now, Israel may have fooled themselves into thinking that their golden calf worship experience would actually please God, but in so doing, they showed that they really hadn't listened. They showed that they thought that they knew better. They showed that the clarity God was giving was not so important to them. And they showed that all in their minds that they needed to do was to worship God. 
however that came about. So now having been disciplined, having been forgiven, and having been restored by God, Israel will press on in faithful obedience to God and his word. So here's the proposition, the fruit of faithful obedience to God's word. That's what we see flowing out from this text. All this buildup of of tests and trials and interactions with God where Israel continues to falter and continues to fail. Now at the end, at the crescendo of this book, Israel finally comes through in being faithful to be obedient to God and his word, and they will see the fruit of that rise up. Now, let's just think about the structure of these six chapters. There's really four sections I want you to see. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 35 is the section on the Sabbath. The next section, I'll call it the, the, the collection, where we, we find out about the, the people of Israel bringing all these materials, as well as bringing themselves and their skills uh, to be used for the building of the tabernacle. Then the next section would be the construction of the tabernacle, and it's divided really into three parts, and we'll get there. But there's this construction that actually takes place. And then finally, the last few verses are the section where God actually dwells in this tabernacle, which would be the crescendo, which would be this this climax to this book. And there are four words that will guide our thoughts through this text. And with each word, we'll learn something about what faithful obedience looks like. So let's begin with this first section that I'm I'm using the word resting to describe it. And what we're going to see in this section is uh, worshipful obedience. And we'll flesh that out here as we work through this text. But I, I want to hone in now on verses 1 through 3 of chapter 35. This is not the first time that God has given instruction to Israel about the keeping of the Sabbath. It's first brought up when God gives Israel manna from heaven and he gives specific instruction about how much they should take and he, he, he drops this kind of new information about, about what they should do on the sixth day and he says on the seventh day you're not to take any manna. That is the Sabbath. And he is kind of establishing this. He's putting the seeds out there. Then, of course, when we get to chapter 20 and we are getting into the section where God is giving his Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And then it's reinforced in the case law in chapter 23, verses 10 through 12, where the Sabbath is really identified in two ways, having to do with the land, Resting the land periodically every seven years, as well as how you need to rest one day out of seven. Then when God is finished giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, this is now chapter 31, he reinforced the importance of keeping Israel's Sabbaths. Exodus 31 verse 13 says, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you or set you apart. And then in verse 15, it says, Whoever does not work on the Sabbath day shall be put, uh, so whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. I mean, these are serious consequences. So he's laying it out. He's giving the consequences. He's giving the rationale behind it. 
And then, interestingly enough, last week, we didn't draw our attention to it, but Exodus chapter 34 and verse 21, we have another uh, statement about the Sabbath that's restated there. And this is what it says. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Get this. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. Which goes against, I want to say, contemporary cultural thinking. You're not supposed to rest in time of plowing. And when the harvest is ready, you need to be out there to harvest it. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't forget to rest, to observe the Sabbath, even during those times. And you have to imagine the context. You might have someone, you know, someone in the greater community who's not a follower of the God of Israel who's out there plowing his field. And he's getting it done. And guess what? You're saying, I'm not. Why? Because I'm going to trust God that he is going to provide through my faithfulness to observe his Sabbath. Then we come to our text. This is verses 1 through 3, and this is what it says. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of some solemn rest holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Here's what God is saying. Even when you're building my dwelling place. Now, would you feel an urgency to get God's dwelling place done? Would you feel a little guilty to say, "Ah, I'm going to take a day off. It's just God's dwelling place. No, you'd want to get it done. He's saying, look, even when you're building my dwelling place, As important as it is, you're still to observe my Sabbath. Just get that. God says, even this effort to please me is prioritized by you keeping my Sabbath. You're to work hard for six days and you're to rest on the seventh. And friends, this is reinforcing an attitude of worshipful obedience among the people. That their worship of him is a far greater priority than the important work or activity or ministry endeavor that you and I are doing. True worship is obedient worship. Now, we'll flesh it out a little bit more. This attitude um, is what we should have now as the church. We need to keep it in mind. We must fight against the Christian culture that is so busy doing good things that we've forgotten to take time to worship God in obedience. In other words, we don't want to be a church that says, well, look at all this good stuff we're doing. Look at all this good stuff we're doing. Look at all this good stuff we're doing. But we're not actually taking time to pause and to open God's word and to be fed by God's word and give him the attention that that he's due. We can replace busyness with what God actually wants us to do when we're gathered together as God's people. And this is why you heard earlier today, we here at Gateway don't want anyone to be stuck in a ministry, I put that in quotes, a ministry for the Lord that is good, but keeps them out, consistently out of the context of corporate worship. It may be a good thing that they're doing, but look, we we need to all take responsibility to share the load because this is important to God. This is important to us uh, as the church. And this is an attitude that needs to be in place in your home as you choose the activities, the hobbies, the sports that your families are involved in. 
God is saying, no matter how busy and how important you think it is, you must take time to rest and be refreshed by worshiping me. In our New Testament era, of course, that means gathering in the hubs that he calls his church. And friends, this might mean that you and I have to reevaluate our schedule to fit God's agenda. It's so easy for the culture around us to actually determine our agenda. And certainly there's some times where there's some, there's some difficulty. Maybe you have a job, you have to work on Sunday or things like that. But we have to ask ourselves the question, who's driving our lives? And forcing things back into place the way God wants it to be. Not the agenda of the world or the agenda that's forced on you or that you've allowed to take control, but God's agenda. So you may have to say no to some activities. You may need to change the when of those hobbies. You may have to sit down and have a heart-to-heart with the coach of that sports team to say, you know what, if there's a game at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, my kids aren't going to be there. So I just want you to know that so you can make some adjustments. When the priority of your rest and refreshment is in place in your heart, you are then free to make choices that reflect a heart of worshipful obedience. Let me say that again. When the priority of your rest and refreshment is in place in your heart, you are then free to make choices that reflect a heart of worshipful obedience. Obedience. You're saying, no, this is a priority. I'm going to make sure this is in place. Everything else then fits into place around you. You see what God is doing with his people. He's saying, look, you're going to, you have a big project ahead of you. You're going to build my dwelling place. There's a lot of work to be done and it's going to be important work. It's primary work. It's my dwelling place. But even though it's for me, you need to pause. You need to rest. You need the Sabbath. And so God gave the Sabbath for both physical and spiritual rest and rejuvenation. Now, of course, we as the church don't observe the Sabbath today, but we embrace the principles behind the Sabbath to take one day out of seven and to give it to the Lord. Friends, that should be a priority for us that our worship, or our obedience should be worshipful obedience, that it's being driven by God's ideology and allowing this us then to, to have this wonderful freedom to rest. Secondly, this next section, verses, chapter 35, verses 4 through 36, verse 7, I'm using the word giving, the word giving. And what we're going to find here is willful obedience. And in this section, we see two kinds of giving that are revealed to us. The giving of materials, as well as the giving of, of, of talents, in particular for the ministry that they have been called to. So let's think first of all about the materials, the giving of materials. This is chapter 35, verses 4 through 36, verse 7. And we see here a remarkable statement about how true repentance is at work in our obedience how repentance affects our obedience, how repentance affects the heart to motivate it toward faithfulness to the Lord. Notice the resounding theme through this chapter. I'm not going to read all of these statements, but the theme is the heart. Did you catch that in your own reading? 
Look at verse 5. Their giving of the materials for use in the building of the tabernacle comes from a generous heart. At verse, uh, verse 21, we're told the people came because their hearts had been stirred, because the Spirit had moved them. And then verse 22, all who were a, uh, of a willing heart brought brooches and, and earrings and signet rings and armlets. Again, this is a, a willing heart, a generous heart, a stirred heart, a willing heart. These are all heart attitudes in their contributions. Then when we think about the ministry, the giving of talents, we have these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. We're told that they're filled by the Spirit of God with the skill, intelligence, and knowledge, and craftsmanship. And then in chapter 36, verse 1, we're told that the Spirit, the Spirit-empowered work took place throughout all the workers. And that they were committed to working in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded. And this is true of both men and women. Notice verse 20, 26. It says, all the women whose hearts stirred them. So this, is, this was everyone working together that were part of these craftsmen. This was everyone working together that was part of, of Israel coming, either providing contributions or committing to the work. Now make no mistake, this is an incredible picture. God's people are giving generously from the heart as they were stirred in the heart to provide for the resources needed for the building of the tabernacle. And add to that, they join together using their individual skills and empowered by the Spirit of God to do the work of the Lord. And when you think about it, friends, isn't that what God calls all of us who are part of his church to do? To give generously from the heart to meet the need of the work of God, that would be his church, and to work together using their God-given talents to carry out his ministry. But I want you to notice two more things that flow out of what we've just seen. I want you to notice, first of all, what happens in verse 29. It says, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. See, there's something we need to learn from this passage about the relationship between God's commandment and our obedience. Somehow we have in our minds that if there is a commandment, then obedience is like, you know, it's just kind of like, I've just got to do it. But what you find here is God commands, and how do the people respond? They give from their heart. So that's just contrary to our thinking. Usually we think command, you must do this. Okay, I'm doing it because I'm told I must. No, God gives his commands, but his people, when they're walking with him, when they're right with him, when they have hearts that are repentant and they're thankful for what God has done, they're doing this joyfully, generously from the heart, willingly. And so what we have here is a willing obedience, not a cold, demanding obedience. It isn't just a matter of keeping the rules in order to satisfy God and maybe keep them off my back. It's a matter of having a repentant heart that joyfully embraces God's commandment as one's own desires. I'm reminded here of Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, when you delight in him, when you have been restored to him, when you're communing with him, 
His desires become your desires. And your desires flow out of that relationship. And you exercise those desires with joy. But notice, secondly, what happens also in this passage. The people of Israel were so eager, moved, and generous in their free will offerings that the workers had to tell Moses. And so Moses had to tell the people to stop bringing the contributions. That's chapter 36 and verses 3 through 7. In fact, we're told the people had to be restrained from bringing their stuff. This is every pastor's dream right here. But just, I want you to see here how their repentance, which happened in the last couple of chapters, and their restoration now is the basis of the kind of way that they're now coming to the Lord with their gifts and then also with their talents. They are rejoicing in being able to give. They're abundant in their giving. And they have to be told to stop. What a picture of willful obedience. The people of God so moved by the Spirit of God to be faithful and obedient to provide both the materials and the work for ministry that God was calling them to. And friends, this was true in Israel, but this can also be true in the church. Now, if we flash forward to the New Testament, in particular to the Apostle Paul's uh, urging uh, of his readers to take up an offering for the needs of the saints, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this, this urgent plea from the, the Apostle Paul. And this is what we, we read. It's, it's, it's an echo. The language is an echo of what we see here in Exodus 35. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. This is what Paul says. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. You see what he's trying to do here? He's preparing them. He doesn't want them to give grudgingly, like you know, someone's walking down and says, uh, you didn't put enough in the offering plate, brother. We're not passing this along until it goes up, you know. No, they're coming, and he wants them to come with a willing heart. And then in verse 7, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You have to wonder if Paul's thinking about Exodus 35 here. Ask yourself the question, do I have a generous heart for the church? Is my heart being stirred up to be faithful in my obedience to give to the ministry? Is my heart being stirred up to use my spirit and power to giftedness for the furtherance of God's purposes through the church? Is all of this a free will offering to the Lord or is it something else? Am I grudgingly doing my part? Have I been neglectful in both my giving and my service to the Lord? Do I give just enough to clear my conscience or am I generous for the Lord? The story is told that one day a beggar by the roadside asked for alms from Alexander the Great as they were traveling through the countryside. This man was poor and miserably dressed. He had no claim upon Alexander the Great. He just reached out and said, you know, please give. And the emperor at that point in time threw him several gold coins. 
And one of the courtiers that was with Alexander the Great was astonished at his generosity. He said, sir, copper coins would adequately meet a beggar's need. Why do you give him gold? Alexander responded in royal fashion, copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. You see, sometimes we just give what, all right, there's a need, I'll give that. As opposed to being reflecting what God has done for us and being generous and cheerful in our heart to give as the Lord moves us and leads us and directs us. Maybe we need to be reminded of the words of Christ who says, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Israel here is an example of willful obedience. They are willfully giving of their talents, of their resources for the purpose that God has called them to. There's a commandment. But the response isn't, oh, I guess I have to do that. I guess I have to give this money. He's commanding me. I guess I have to go use my talents for him. No, 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 no. This is a joyful, generous, willing, eager heart to be obedient to the Lord. My friends, my, my desire is, first of all, that my heart would be that way. And my desire would be that Gateway, as, as a church family, would be that way. Not because we're trying to get your money, but because we want to honor the Lord. You get that? That it's, it's our heart attitude that God is changing, that he's affecting. And we trust that God, with whatever he gives us, we would use for his glory and, and further his kingdom. So they've been commanded to give, but they give joyfully, willingly, and from the heart and for the glory of God. So we've seen uh, the idea of resting, the idea of, of giving. Now we move into the third section. It's a long section. But the word here is working. But the, the relationship to obedience is this word careful obedience. So we look at this long section, and, and the emphasis here is just the work that was going to take place in building the tabernacle. Exodus 36, 8, verses 40, and verse 33. And it divides neatly into three sections. First of all, there's the construction. Secondly, there's the inspection that Moses gives. And then there is the assembly of the actual tabernacle. So the construction. When we say construction, we're not saying putting it up. We're talking about the actual building of all the different artifacts and you know, creating all the, 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 the garments for the priests and that kind of stuff. Now, if you read through Exodus in your Bible reading, when you came to this section, you might have begun to scratch your head wondering if you just experienced deja vu thinking, didn't I just read that? And you did. Chapters 25 through 30 describe what should take place, and chapters 36 through 40 describe um, what does take place. So the first one talks about what should take place. This last one describes what actually does take place. Okay, You understand the distinction there. The details, however, are, are almost identical. There's a few nuances in there. But the, the main focus is we have the same content. We have the same things being described. One is saying, this is what you need to do, and then this is what they did. So most, again, of what we read is a repetition. 
And if you remember, chapters 25 through 30 is a section that we work through in great detail. And we strove to look at each of the elements there that were given, uh, each piece of furniture, maybe each garment, to show how that, that furniture or garment pointed to Christ. And just like in those chapters, this passage deals with both furnishings and the priest's garments. So let's think about the furnishings. And I just want you to notice, if you have your Bibles and you look there at chapter 36 and verse 8 and following, you'll just notice that all these things are listed and it says they made the curtains, they made the loops, they made the frames, they made the bars and the veils. Now he goes on to describe exactly what they were doing as they were making it, but there's this word made, right? They made the Ark of the Covenant. They made the table. They made the lampstand. Uh, and they made the altar. They made the anointing oil. They made the, the altar of sacrifice, the bronze basin, and the court with all its pillars and its curtains. The word made here implies that what they made conformed to what God had commanded by his word. God had said, this is what you're to do. This is what you're to make. And here it says, this is what they did. They made these things. But then we move to the priest garments. This would be chapter 39 primarily. And what we find here as we look at these descriptions of the, of the priest garments is the craftsmen are working on these priest garments. And the text is very, very clear about what happened. It says seven times as the Lord commanded Moses in verse 1, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 21, in verse 26, in verse 29. And verse 31. So you start getting this resounding theme. They made, 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 they made. And then in this next section with the priestly garments, it's they they crafted these things as the Lord commanded, as the Lord had commanded Moses, as the Lord had commanded Moses. You see this this repetition. When this is in the text, you've got to pay attention. And you've got to realize that God is trying to communicate something to us. Why does God go through the exhaustive detail of repeating all these instructions and showing that God's people carefully fulfilled them? Because he wants us to see that Israel's careful obedience is at work. Their careful obedience to his word is taking place. Israel had not been careful previously. They weren't obedient to God's word. They somehow, in their minds, thought that it was okay to violate it and still yet try and worship God with their own creation. But here we see the fruit of their repentance, that their hearts are oriented to carefully obey what God had commanded. And this is reinforced again in the next two sections. We move from the construction to the inspection. This is chapter 39, verses 32 through 43. When the craftsmen had finished making all the furnishings, Moses now comes to inspect the work. In other words, there's an accountability for the carefulness of the work done. Notice what it says in verse 32. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. So you can imagine Moses going by and looking at all the different pieces of furniture and the priest garments and saying, did you build the Ark of the Covenant the way God instructed it? Yes, we did. We followed it to a T. Okay. Did you stitch the stones into the priest's ephod correctly? Yes, we did. We arranged it just, just as the Lord said. Did the, the loops, uh, did the, the, uh, 
Did you tie the loops? Did you cover the table? Did you engrave the plate of the turban just the way the Lord had instructed? And of course, saying, yes, we did. And we find at the end of that section, verse 43, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Their careful obedience passed Moses' inspection. So there's construction, there's inspection, but then in chapter 40, we find the assembly of the tabernacle. The first part, I think 1 through 16, is God saying, this is how you're going to assemble it. And then after that, through verse 33, we find Moses and the people actually assembling the tabernacle together. When it says Moses assembled it, understand he's not out there by himself with everyone watching. Oh, he's going he's gonna to lift up now the, the, the table of showbread. Oh, go, go, Moses, go do that. No, he's, he's leading it, okay? He has people that are workers helping kind of construct this thing. But Moses is leading it, right? But I want you to notice. We see here God giving these instructions and then the actual construction of it. But again, this theme is is coming through again. Verse 16, this Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him. So he did. And seven times again, we read the same expression. As the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses. Do you think God is wanting to show us something here? He's not so much here interested in giving us the specifics of what needed to be done. He's already said that. What he's showing us here is how these people now go about building and constructing and inspecting and then assembling the tabernacle just the way he had commanded them to do it. And so that's why it says in verse 33, so Moses finished the work. What all this is saying to us is is the importance of careful obedience. Now hear this. Obedience that is to be complete is not an elective endeavor. Complete obedience must conform to what God has said. It's not adjusted by your nuance and your thinking. In the year 12,010, King John of England had an idea. For many years, the the royal forests were available to both the the elite as well as the the others, the peasants, to come and to to hunt and to find their food and take it home and use it for their their own families. But you had to pay... uh, a usage fee in order to do that. Well, he had this idea, and the idea was that he was going to raise the fee and he was going to limit the use of that forest to the upper classes. And he put a man in charge of this by the name of Thomas Mulberry. He was called the Royal Forester. However, it wasn't too long before Thomas realized he had a problem. There weren't enough in the upper class who were coming and using the forest to generate the kind of revenue that the king wanted to generate. So he thought to himself, you know what, I I need to solve this problem. I need to figure out what I need to do. And so what he did is he created a a reduced rate for the local peasants to actually come and to use the property and to get the kind of food that they needed to to get. Ended up that the the king's coffers were actually satisfied and, and met the target. And so the king eventually summoned him six months later to report to what was going on. And here's what he said. 
The king asked, well, my royal forester, is my plan working as expected? Yes, your highness, replied Thomas. Revenues are as projected. Of course, the king was really happy about that. Added Thomas, there was one problem, but I managed to solve it. And then he took the time to kind of walk through what happened and his rationalization and how he, he lowered the fee to allow the peasants to come in and to use the property. And of course, all of that was, was you know, resulting in the money being there. And the king listened intently and offered an occasional uh-huh and a yes, I see. And the following morning, Thomas was hanged for treason. And the reason he was hanged for treason was because he did not obey the king's instructions. That seems really, really harsh, and I think it is. The point, though, is when God gives us his instructions, we don't have the freedom to adjust them according to our own wisdom. God says, this is what I want you to do. And you need to follow what I want you to do. I mean, just take the tabernacle. You know, someone might have said, you know, there's not going to be enough air in the Holy of Holies. We should lift the curtain up so that, you know, so that the air can get out. We don't want, we don't want a priest to, to suffer from the smoke and you know, might get cancer or something like that, right? So we're going to do it this way. No, you do that, you're causing trouble. Danger is coming. See, we don't have the freedom to treat God's commandments like going to the old country buffet where we pick and choose what we like and what we want to obey. No, God serves us his word and we either choose to obey it or not. See, friends, it demands that we are careful about our obedience. In other words, to result with complete obedience demands that we are careful in going into the thing that we are supposed to be obedient to so that it will be complete obedience. Now, friends, this this applies to how you build your marriage, doesn't it? Will you allow God's word to guide and direct what your marriage should look like or you allow the pop psychology and the spirit of the age, which are always popular, to shape your values for your marriage? God says, here's the blueprint. Listen to me and obey. This also uh, deals with how we raise our children, doesn't it? We can follow the example of our parents. That might be good. That might be bad. That's very common a tendency in parenting. You typically either parent like your parents did or the complete opposite. We can listen to the counsel of our culture, or we can remind ourselves that God has spoken in order to give us a blueprint and to guide us in our parenting. And the question is, will we be obedient to what God says? This also has bearing on how you simply live your life. There's so many voices out there now, aren't there? I mean, we have so many voices that that come through us in so many different ways. I mean, mean, not only about 25 years ago, it was so much simpler. Because you didn't have the internet. And the voices came to you were, you know, through the radio or through talking with people. But today, I mean, we're just getting hit all over the place. And we've got to be able to discern through those voices and hear the one true voice and be willing to listen to him and allow him to guide our paths. See, the faithful child of God will seek to prioritize what God has revealed in his word rather than give in to those other voices. 
We want to be guided by and obedient to God's resounding voice. For in obeying him, friends, we know that our obedience will be will bear good fruit. So, resting, giving, working, and now finally, filling. Filling. Now you're saying to yourself, Pastor Rob, that's the fastest you have ever gone through chapters like that before. Well, we're nowhere near done yet, so I just wanted to make sure you were happy with that. I'm joking with you, of course. Filling. And what we're going to see here is fruitful obedience. And we're looking here at the last part of chapter 40. Now, when Moses finished the work by making sure that the Ark of the Covenant was in place and the curtain was properly hung and the table was set and the altar was ready for sacrifice, some amazing things happened that had never happened before. Look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this might be familiar to us, so we're not impacted by it, but we should. First of all, I want you to notice God enters in. What we have here is this, in this cloud of God's glory is a theophany. And a theophany is when there's a visible manifestation of the invisible God. We're told here the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, when we think of the word filled, we don't just want to think about uh, maybe kind of a room being filled with smoke. It has some of that idea certainly to it, but there's something more going on here. The Hebrew word for filling, mele, is significant because it reflects a dynamic, ongoing situation. In other words, the tabernacle was pulsating and radiating God's glory. So you have to understand here, this is no small thing. When God comes to dwell in the tabernacle, the people are watching and what they see is the cloud descend and they see the radiating glory of God in the tabernacle. In some way, they're seeing it. And it's an amazing reality, friends. Phil Riken's words are helpful here. He says, the glory that filled the tabernacle was a spectacular display of the radiance of God's being, the God of Exodus, the God of power who made the heavens and the earth, the God of justice who plagued the Egyptians, the God of love who kept his covenant with Israel, the God of providence uh, who led his people through the wilderness, the God of truth who gave them his law, the God of mercy who atoned for their sins, the God of holiness who set them apart for service. This great God was present in glory. And when the people looked at the tabernacle, they could see that God was in the house. It wasn't just like, oh, okay, well, good. Now he's got a place to stay. No, he is with his people in fullness of glory. I don't think we can comprehend this. I just don't think we quite understand how incredibly powerful and significant this is. Now, friends, not only that, Not only does God enter in, but look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I mean, you have to feel a little bad for Moses here, don't you? I mean, think about this. 
The one who had been called by God in the wilderness at the burning bush to lead his people out of Egypt. The one who stood before Pharaoh as God's mouthpiece saying, let my people go. The one who represented Israel as their mediator, even willing to give up his life for their safety and salvation. The one who met with God face to face in his tent of meeting that was outside the camp. The one who pleaded with God that he would go with the people, the same Moses is now denied entrance. There's a change that is taking place here in the economy of Israel. The end of Exodus has been moving toward a climactic moment when the tabernacle would be finished and the people would be able to meet with their God. But when the moment finally comes, the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God and even the mediator cannot get in. Now, the only way for anyone to meet with God, even Moses, is through a blood sacrifice for sin. Now, I say you feel bad for Moses. I mean, in our human kind of world, we would say, you know, that's, that's kind of a crock. This guy's been serving you faithfully all this time, and, and now he can't even go in? That's because he's not the real mediator. See, all the time, he, in his activity as the mediator, has been pointing to the greater mediator, who is Jesus Christ. Moses represented the people to God and represented God to the people. Jesus represents himself from the Father to us, but Jesus is also the sacrifice. He stands before God as our meteor, also as the sacrifice, having paid with his own blood. And friends, this is a reminder that God's glory is far more glorious than we can ever imagine. We can so easily get comfortable in our thinking, in our talking, in our contemplating of God. We can throw statements about God's sovereignty and his holiness and his grace and his mercy and his eminence and his transcendence and all these, might say, bigger words. And we can lose our awe. Because... Those words just roll off our lips so easily. And yet here is Israel. God is with them in all of his glory. Have we lost our awe of him? This climax to the book of Exodus is not just that Israel gets to meet with God, but that Israel gets to meet with God in all his glory. He's come to dwell with them. The clouds settled and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, friends, God enters in. Moses is shut out, but Israel now is assured. And that's what we have in the rest of these verses. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What an assurance they had of the active present, or active presence of the I am in their midst day 
after day after day. Now hear this. It is through Israel's faithful obedience to God's word that the fruit of God's promise is gloriously realized. Now hear this. God will accomplish all he sets out to do. But God works through people. And he wants to work through his obedient people. So it wasn't as if God was somehow dependent on Israel. No, he's not dependent on Israel. He's going to do what he's going to do. But he works through Israel, even with all their mess. You know, Ed began this morning by taking us to a psalm to remind us, yeah, we fall flat on our faces, don't we? And yet God somehow is at work in his sovereignty. We sang the song, Whate'er my God ordains is right, (laughs) which includes our failure, our struggle, our tests, our sinfulness, our restoration. And so it is through Israel's faithful obedience to God's word that the fruit of God's promise is gloriously realized. The fruit of their obedience is God with them. In particular, in the tabernacle. Now, friends, I want to bring this all to a close. And there's really two two sections to my closing here. First of all, I just want to say that Exodus has been a great book that has been an anchor for us through 2020, through half of 2021. It's been a great book practically, helping us with all the strange tests that God has allowed us to walk through in those two years. A pandemic in the form of COVID-19, sheltering in place, um, a charged political climate culminating with elections and craziness there, a social justice climate where we've all had to face some of the ugliness that takes place in a wicked and sinful people who do not know God. But it's also been a great book theologically. We've seen how Exodus is the source of so many biblical themes that run through the Old Testament and spill over into the New Testament. Uh, themes that are essential to our understanding of the gospel. I just sat down this morning and just jotted a few down. There's, I'm sure, a lot more, but bondage and freedom and deliverance and redemption and idolatry and repentance and reconciliation and the presence of God and the glory of God. I mean, there's so many that just are, are screaming out of this text of the rest of the Bible. It has been a great book to anchor us during this time Theological, But it's also been a great book for our discipleship. Exodus has been used by God to instill in us a new and fresh gospel perspective as we journey on for the glory of God. And so what I want to walk through right now is, is maybe that new, fresh perspective. And so I want to say this, that Exodus has taught us to do seven things. You're like, oh, man. It's okay. We'll move it fast. But just kind of... Hang with me and see these. It's taught us, first of all, to look back, to look to Christ and to our bondage and to our deliverance. You know, as as you're driving your car down the road, one of the things you're taught to do is what? Periodically look in the mirror. 
And what Exodus has taught us to do is as we're journeying through life is to, is to periodically look back and be reminded not only of our sinfulness, but also of the gospel as it obviously is fleshed out in Christ and our deliverance that comes from that. And we need to constantly remind ourselves. Obviously, the evidence of that is when God instituted the Lord's Supper. So we need to look back. It's taught us also to look ahead. Why? Because Israel was ultimately looking toward the promised land. And there's going to be more in the story about that. And for us, the promised land is heaven where we'll meet with him one day face to face. It's taught us then to look up to God, the mighty I am who I am, who created us, sustains us, and is always with us. It's taught us to look down, to see God's word, and to see that it is relevant, that it's always relevant. I mean, how many times we came to a passage, and I'm just, you know, as the pastor, I'm studying through it. I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen here. And by the time it comes to Sunday morning, I preach, and you guys are like, we read this passage, Pastor Rod, and we had no idea where you're going to go. And I said, well, I, I went where the text tells me to go. And what we discovered is that the Word of God is so absolutely relevant. It's taught us to look within to our own tendency to sin, and so to repent and to to value and listen to and obey God's word. It's taught us to to look around. If you remember one of the themes, uh, major themes in the book of Exodus is God wants to be known. And so we realize that God has put us in a place and that he wants to be known among us. He wants to be known among our family. He wants to be known around our community. He wants us to be that beacon that is radiating his glory to those around us. It's taught us also to, to look out. Because God is always at work testing the genuineness of our faith, isn't he? Which is a good thing. Now, with all that in mind, the book of Exodus encourages us on our pilgrim journey while we wait for the glory of the Lord to appear. The Apostle Paul summarizes it for us in one verse. It's Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you you also will appear with him in glory. And friends, there will be no need for a tent. There'll be no need for a tabernacle. There'll be no need for a temple because Jesus will take us into the very presence of God in all of his glory. Lord, thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you, Lord, for the way you have fashioned and shaped us through this year and a half, the way that you've exposed our hearts to things that maybe we hadn't thought of before, the way we have seen you in your glory, in your power, in your majesty, through your deliverance, through your dealings with with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, through your dealings with Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, through your dealings with Israel. Lord, as they sin, knowing what you have revealed in your word. Lord, you have, you have guided us, you've shepherded us, you've encouraged us, you've strengthened us, Lord, you've convicted us. And Lord, what comes through resounding in our text this morning as things finish up is that you desire for us to be a people who are obedient to you. 
and that through our obedience to you, we will see the fruit of all that you promise. But our failure to be obedient, Lord, will result in losing out on those things, Lord. When you you so so much want us to, to move and to grow and mature and develop. So Lord, help us to learn, not only by Israel's mistakes, but by Israel's example here in their faithfulness to be obedient to you. And Lord, may it be our desire to know you, to love you, to see you in all your glory. And Lord, may we not be um, shaken by the things that might be before us. May we be able to rise above and to see that you are ordaining these things for your glory, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, you are the great I am that I am. And Lord, as we have the privilege to interact with you, to to, to rest in you, to rely on you, that we would, Lord, see our responsibility is, Lord, to to follow your word, to, to, to do our part, Lord, to flesh it out. And in so doing, Lord, you are going to accomplish your purposes through us. And so, Lord, as a church and as a people, would you give us, Lord, a boldness? Would you give us a heart, Lord, that is stirred to be generous? Would you help us, Lord, to work with diligence and obedience? And Lord, may we just marvel at your glory as you accomplish your purposes through our little church. We want to glorify you, Lord. We're we're a sinful, frail people who who want to be obedient. Lord, help us to do the, the things that you've called us to do. Lord, may we find strength from your word, by your spirit, and through the gospel to do that. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen.